Okay, so I'm stood here in my lounge in Leicestershire, and I'm talking to one of my, I'm going to call him an artistic hero, a design hero. I'm, I'm, I'm a, acutely aware of this man's work. I've been acutely aware of this man's work since before I knew it was cool. I just knew it was something beautiful and special about it. I'm sat talking to Malcolm Garrett. Well, Malcolm, you can explain who you are in a minute, but I was first bought to, Malcolm's work was brought to my attention in posters for music bands, and they're just so iconic and so incredible. And I couldn't believe my luck about 10 years ago when Malcolm was running an event in Manchester and I was asked to speak at it. And I loved the poster that he designed for the event so much that that was framed as well. So Malcolm, welcome. And I can't tell you how much your work has meant, not just to me, but to people of my generation and just a little bit before me as well. That post-punk era was super, super powerful. How are you? I'm fine. Well, that's that's very kind of me to say all those words. I'm a, I'm almost speechless, but it takes a little bit more than that to render me speechless. However, I can't actually claim responsibility for designing the poster for Design Manchester back in 2014, I think it was, oh, because all, pretty much all of the graphics for Design Manchester had done my my creative partner in Manchester, John Owens. And so he did all of the posters for it. But it was still beautiful. Yes. He's a fabulous designer. It's an absolute pleasure to work with him because, yeah, I was about to say, I don't have to think about designing stuff for Design Manchester. And that sounds like I don't care, but I do care. And and I do do some things. But John does everything so well, I don't have to worry about it. You know, it's just great. But that trust, I mean, I think that's really interesting. Or straight up, before we've even started, I think creativity is about trust. I think when I've worked with a couple of brand designers recently to rebrand my business, and I haven't even given one of them a brief. I've just gone, I trust you. And he's gone away and delivered some beautiful work because trust breeds magic. And trust is not about, I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to see what people have done in the past. I want to understand how they feel about the future. That, that's how I would choose. That's exactly my attitude towards working with people. And you do your best work when you work with somebody who, if you like, gives you that space to get into their space in order to deliver for them. Yeah. You know, it's all about understanding and and it's more than understanding. It's about empathy. Yeah. And you only have that empathy with somebody who, as you say, trusts you. You know, I have a saying, you can't do good work for a client that doesn't want it. Unless the client believes in you and gives you that space, but also gives you all of the material you need to work with and then goes, you know, you know what I need. Just do it. Yeah. And all of my best work has been generated in that space where I just know I don't have to think, oh, will a client like that? Is it really? You just do it. And it becomes sort of instinctive. You go, this is right. And then the person you're working with comprehends that it's right they may not get it right away and because that's also a, a if you like one of the things you learn is that if it's right it doesn't necessarily look right right away yeah because if it looks too right right away it probably reminds you of something else so it's wrong it belongs to somebody else and what you're trying to do is create something that belongs to that client or that situation you know or that environment and it's like brand doesn't happen overnight. Brands grow into something. And part of the rightness of a brand or the awareness of a brand 
is familiarity. And that, by definition, means you have to spend time or things kind of evolve over time, you know, even if your, your perception of them evolves over time. So some of my most successful work, I guess, has been a little bit kind of, oh, a little bit jarring at first. And what I've learned as a designer is how to build that into the design process. And so the simplest way of doing that is, is trying to do something quickly and then not committing to the client to deliver it quickly. So that you build enough, enough space for you to go away and to come back at it and look at it fresh and see whether it works. Because two things might happen. One, you might lose sight of what was good about an idea as you work, you know, work at it too much. And secondly, the opposite, it might look wrong initially. And so you have to get used to finding out the rightness in something that feels wrong. I love that. that makes sense. Yeah, no, I love it. And, the, you know, the whole idea of looking at this in a more philosophical way really appeals to me. And you define this space somewhere between permission, trust, and breaking the rule, not breaking the rules, that's the wrong word, permission, trust. No, you write a new rule, yeah. is what you do. You write a new rule that is right for this new situation. And I love that. But I love this idea about having to grow used to the jarring nature of what you first designed. But what I really love about what you've just said, Malcolm, is it's not just that the client that has to grow used to it, that there was some inflection about you needing to grow used to it. Absolutely, yeah. Because if you like it straight away, it's probably because you've done something similar before. Yeah. I've got a talk lined up with Liverpool John Moores University, and they wanted to know what's the theme of the talk. And the theme of the talk, I realised, is going to be about ownership. It's like, who owns your design? And actually, the, the person who owns your design is the person for whom it's intended. The recipient owns the design. And so creating something or producing something, because creation is a bit of a strong word, I think, because all we do is rearrange stuff <laughs> in, you know, to different levels or different degrees. But you produce something, and it has to be produced, especially in the music industry, and, you know, in, with music. I was kind of referred to me creating a record sleeve as not actually producing a record sleeve, but actually creating a visual space to understand the sound that it contains. So you create a space for music. So in the music industry, is especially because people identify so much with music, you know, you talk about our song or my song. So what you produce has to work in the mind of the person for whom it's, it's intended. You know, your appreciation of Jamie Reed is your appreciation. Yeah. You own that Jamie Reed that I see behind you because it means something to you. It's got other stuff that's in your head that's connected with it. So your Jamie Reed is quite different from my Jamie Reed, and neither of them belong to Jamie Reed. And the interesting thing there is that's changed, I guess, when video emerged, when video changed the way that we saw bands, all we had to mm -hmm. see them with before was the album cover. And I poured over every single word, every single scratch on the record. Who didn't? That's what we did. Yeah. You know, again, I tell, you know, I taught students and there's a slide in my presentation and it's Deep Purple in Rock, Black Sabbath Paranoid and Led Zeppelin 2. Yeah. I'm going to say these album sleeves are icons of their era on the one hand, but also 
they are indicative of you would carry that album sleeve under your arm going into school wearing your great coat just to tell everybody in the class hey you would tell them this is the music i like yeah first and foremost secondly you would say i know something you don't because you either don't like this music or you've no idea what it is. Anyway, so, I'm better than you. <laughs> and, and, and so it's to- it, it was social media. The record sleeve was an Instagram post. I love that idea. And you're right. I mean, I was looking at some of your work yesterday, and Orgasm Addict is, is up there. Buzzcocks is probably the most iconic, I guess. I don't know. But Duran Duran Rio, I've only got to see that image, and I can see the video. I can hear the album. What you did with that... Would you like to come in and sit in on my MA class? Because that's exactly what I say. I would love that. I use the example. I just put up a slide, and I'll describe what the slide is, and you tell me what it is. It's a black slide. Yeah. It has a whitish triangle, and it has a coloured stripe that splits into a rainbow. We're straight away into classic... Classic rock album covers there. That is yeah. straight off. You're looking at it, and I'm transported right back. I'm going to guess the year because I'm not entirely certain. I'm transported right back to the early 80s. Go further. Is it uh, late 70s? Minor Strike. Oh, right. No, it's not the Minor Strike. It's It was the um, Power Cuts. Oh, the three-day week. Yeah, the three-day oh, week. So, so that whole social unrest at that point was brutal. Mm. And we associate it with music so clearly. But look, what I want to ask, so I always start with the same three questions. Okay, yeah, yeah, because I realise we've talked for half an hour and you haven't asked me your questions yet. I don't care. I warned you. I don't care, I like it. So number one, tell me, I'm really fascinated by what makes people make things. And I'm really interested in what made Malcolm. And uh, so what your childhood, tell me what your childhood smelt like, tasted like and sounded like. Um, what did it smell like? I, I've, I've, I've sort of no idea. I've not got a very good sense of smell, to be honest, even now. And so the only smell that ever gets through to me is the smell of new mown grass. If I'm walking down the street, that is a smell of, oh, oh, somebody's just mowing the lawn. But it, it's not specifically attached to my childhood, but that is a smell that I notice. Um, Taste, I guess <laughs> it's sweets. And the sweets, you know, you had all sorts of sweets when you were a kid. You had flying saucers with sherbet in. Oh. And you had a sherbet dip with licorice, oh, licorice or imperial mints or pineapple chunks, pineapple squares. Yep. So it's all those sweets, all of them. You know, I, I would have tuppence in my pocket and I'd stop at the sweet shop and spend me tuppence on the way to school, walking to primary school. And I bought bubblegum cards, but not for the bubblegum. I mean, the, the bubblegum was a waste of time. Bazooka Joe was a better bubblegum than what you got with your bubblegum cards. Were you a Bazooka Joe or a Bubbly? Which was your preferred bubblegum out of those two? Um, bazooka Joe, always. Because it was American? Because you got a cartoon? No, no, it's because that was the one that was there. Oh, Blackjacks, my favourite. Licorice. I love licorice to this day. Okay, so that's the taste. Otherwise, we'll go on forever. And what was the third? That smell taste. What did it sound like? The Beatles. It was the Beatles. It was the Beatles or it was music, put it that way. It was 
what my elder brothers were listening to. So my eldest brother listened to The Shadows, Jet Harris on guitar. Yeah. Uh, and Hank, whatever his name is. Marvin. And my other brother listened to the very early Bee Gees. Before the Bee Gees, you know, kind of 70s Bee Gees. This is 60s Bee Gees. And the Beatles. I grew up with the Beatles. Hard Day's Night was the first film I went to see at the cinema. Can't Buy Me Love mm -hmm. was the first single I owned. I still own it. The first sort of television I can remember is watching Yellow Submarine debut on, um, must have been at Christmas, and watching a, an early colour television at my aunt and uncle's and being amazed at these colours that looked like they were fluorescent on a TV screen. They were glowing. The idea of glowing, it just worked. So, yeah, the sound is... Definitely music-oriented. Um, yeah, can't think of anything else. So which was your favourite Beatles? I mean, I know that probably, this has probably changed over time. I've got a very clear, distinct favourite Beatles album. Which was your favourite Beatles album? Well, of course, I kind of predate albums. So I, I never owned a Beatles album. It was always about the singles. singles. So I was seven in 1963 when I'm beginning to notice the Beatles. And that's it. In quick succession, Can't Buy Me Love, Hard Day's Night, and the next one, which I still think is the finest song, certainly the finest song that John Lennon wrote, but one of the finest songs ever, Help. Yeah, it's a great song. Because Help was amazing. Because as, as a seven or eight-year-old, I would have been, I suppose, that was a really jolly song. It was a pop song. Help, I need somebody, help. You know, and it was only years and years later I realised that underneath this jolly pop song that no doubt went to number one, there was a screaming voice saying literally, help, I'm drowning in fame. I can't deal with this. And that ability to say two things simultaneously, say something from the heart about his own condition, yet at the same time creates a song that was lively and vibrant and fresh. And... I was talking about that song only this morning because I was in the middle of Qigong and I was doing this <laughs> and then I moved to this and I looked at it and because I'm wearing this kind of like, it's not a beatnik top, it's a big baggy sort of jumper and, I, and I, I said, I look like something from the cover of the Beatles Help album. You couldn't yeah. spell it out any clearer on that album cover of what John yeah. needed. It was absolutely crystal clear, four images, four letters, one yeah. word and... It is absolutely fascinating, I think. Uh, mine's Rubber Soul, I think. Rubber Soul is probably my favourite. Right. I mean, I think mine, in retrospect, I mean, looking back at, from a later period, because by the time I got to be a teenager, you know, I wasn't listening to the Beatles. You know, I was listening to Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. Yeah. And the Beatles were a little bit boring. You know, for a temporary period, they'd lost their appeal to me as a rebel, as a rebel teenager. And so even Sergeant Peppers, which is ultimately is probably my favourite, yeah. was sort of lost on me at the time. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've got a couple of Heinz Edelman prints. I've, I've got three. I can't get Paul McCartney, but I've got mm. John, Ringo and George. They're the famous images from Yellow Submarine of their faces. All right. Yeah. Um, they're really hard to get hold of. And actually, a really good designer a friend of mine has drawn Paul for me, which is a bit cheeky, but at least I can put them all together. But 
you know, you, you talk about help and you talk about Yellow Submarine. They were breaking boundaries in design at this point. Image-wise, something changed with them. Well, they were the turning point for which ultimately, you know, what happened during punk was that, if you like, the musicians or people on behalf of the musicians took control of the marketing department, took control of the, of the design department on their behalf. But the turning point was the Beatles. And it was Revolver. As they said, no, no, this is a space for art. And Sgt. Peppers, and then, <laughs> and then the complete 180 degree opposite to Sgt. Peppers in its, all of its glory, the White Album, yeah. Richard Hamilton. You know, they changed our understanding of what that bit of cardboard was actually about. And it took another, you know, well, 10 years from Sgt. Peppers let's say five years to Hawkwind and then another five years to Jamie Reed. So the Beatles took that space and said, no, this space is ours. And then Hawkwind and Barney Bubbles took that space and said, well, actually all the other bits of space around it are also ours. Yeah. And so, you know, the Beatles are credited with all sorts of amazing firsts, but that seldom is it fully understood how they took control of their image, their own image. And, you know, no doubt the fact there wasn't a front person, it wasn't John Lennon and the Beatles, it wasn't Paul McCartney and the Beatles, it was the Beatles and the four individuals, you know, even poor old Ringo, you know, he had his place. As a seven-year-old, you know, they were all just as important. Yeah, I get that. Again, I didn't realise until years later that it was actually about John and Paul. I mean, because as a kid, you just who was your favourite Beatle? And mine was George. Yeah. Because he seemed like a sort of quiet and a bit more thoughtful than the rest. You know, think of that, you know, a quiet Beatle. There's no such thing. There isn't a crap. No, you're absolutely right. And it is really interesting if you track that. We're getting towards where we are now. But if you track everything from, you know, the first Beatles albums were all about photos of them. Rubber Soul was a bit different. It had this kind of slightly blurry, melty feeling to it. Well, they had that weird photograph from underneath and then yeah. just a blob of lettering. Blob of lettering that, that melted. Yeah. And I really love that. But from so from there, it's the dark side of the moon. We referenced earlier in 73. You got it. Everything changed in album design. And how influential was that period on your design sensibilities? Enormously. I mean, I, I mentioned Hawkwind. In Search of Space was, for me, the absolute pivot point because in search of space the second hawkwind album and the first album designed for them by barney bubbles yeah and the first barney bubbles design that i was aware of had an enormous effect it folded out like a cardboard hawk it was both geometric and fluidly psychedelic did it have a kind of side on stamp bust or something in the middle of it and then a series of kind of um, fractals almost, not fractals, like prisms. Yes, that one, yes. Yeah. Yeah, showing it to camera now. Yeah. And I bought this from a second-hand shop because it's fucked. It's held together by sellotape that's now dried up and falling apart because it has this fold-out thing. It doesn't have a record with it. I paid a quid just to own this battered and beaten sleeve because this is a sleeve that is alive through all of that and for me barney and in fact all of the people who were if you like associated with hawkwind 
you know, not just the musicians or the music notes, as I like to call them, but, you know, the dancers, the lighting, the roadies, everybody, they created their own alternative music universe mm-hmm. that lived one step removed from the music industry in precisely the way that punk tried to emulate. But actually, they did it. I mean, you know, in the same way that, you know, the fanzines, you know, sniffing glue, Barney met Hawkwind through laying out uh, Friends, the um, underground magazine, the alternate press. And so there was an entire separate lifestyle. You know, they invented the free festival. They invented Glastonbury. You know, it's, it's like all of this, you know, was incredibly informative. To I, would, I was 15 when this came out. So I've grown up with the Beatles. I've got into heavy rock as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old. And then suddenly I'm, if you like, trying to, trying to come to terms with what my identity is and where it's going. Yeah. And so this was the milestone. You know, as more things came together for me, I could refer back to this more and more and realize how influential it was in all sorts of ways that I wasn't necessarily cognizant of. You know, it's only with hindsight you're able to be analytical. Of course. And comprehend how things were. Because so much of what you do, you do sort of instinctively, intuitively. You do it because that's what you want to do. It feels right. And that's what felt right to me. So draw me the line between 15. Was it 15 when you... Yeah, Yeah. 1971 this came out. So when you were 15 and when you first designed something that you went, oh, that's bigger than me. How did you get from 15 to the Buzzcocks? Well, all sorts of things, you know, just everything, you know, 15, then from there taking psychedelic drugs. I can remember listening to this album, having taken acid and hearing it through my teeth, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because that that synesthesia, you know, kicked in big time. And so, you know, I started growing my hair long, great coats, started going out with girls, started going out to parties, started drinking, you know, and, and, you know, just actually growing into the person I would become. Yeah. First of all, as, as a sixth former, 16, 17. So it was like, you know, 72, 73. And then got my A-level 74. I went off to university, went to Reading University to do a typography course. Because again, instinctively, very early on, I realized I was not an artist. I'm not somebody who, who has this passion to put my soul onto canvas. <laughs> and I was never able to do that. I can, you know, remember as, as a kid asking my dad, dad, what can I draw? What can I draw? Because I had no, there was nothing in my head that was burning that had to be put down on paper. But as, as I say, as soon as somebody said, oh, can you do this? Then I would do it. So I was always cognizant that I was always responding to things that needed drawing or things that needed doing. And I liked words. I liked the shape of letters, you know, probably through pop art. Yeah. You know, Andy Warhol and Ed Ruscha, you know, all the pop artists that put letters into their paintings. So, you know, I took psychedelic lettering and pop art and put them together. So I then went to university to do a course in typography because that was the only course I could find at a university that had any sense of like what I might 
want to do because all of the graphic design courses of course were at polytechnics yeah. and i'm at a grammar school that's pushing towards university i got onto the one university course then realized once i got there i started to actually understand they started to tell me this is what graphic design is malcolm you know it's not just drawing letters because you like the shapes of the letters it's they have to do something <laughs> at which i again i knew instinctively but i learned what that actually meant but i still wanted to have more fun and so i left reading university and i went to manchester polytechnic i transferred to a different course my old schoolmate peter savile had gone to do a foundation course at manchester and and he seemed to be doing much more exciting projects than i was at reading university you know i was it was quite academic i was writing a lot of bloody essays and back then i wasn't a very good writer i was not interested i like writing now i've learned how to write but i came to understand what graphic design actually was so i guess the answer is several things are happening in parallel you know you're finding yourself you're finding what your identity is you're pursuing your interest in music you're learning the disciplines of graphic design you're coming to understand what graphic design is and how to communicate and how to work with people and that all sorts of comes together and then lo and behold because you're going out to see music all the time you come across the fucking sex pistols and the notion that uh, you're a, a design school and you think wouldn't it be great if there was a dada movement and i could be part of dada you know and bring together rebellion and creativity in one little framework and it's the fucking sex pistols and it's like boom and i'm in manchester and my friend linda says and here's the buzzcocks oh here's my mates they need a designer because linda didn't see herself as a designer she was an illustrator she was an artist and so that's how orgasm addict came together is that she was doing these illustrations sort of loosely based around the themes of buzzcock songs yeah and i was exploring typography and design and packaging around similar themes and it was a smart move by linda to say you know in the first instance let's work together but actually i'm not interested in it so you you do it and linda introduced me to howard yeah to richard boone their manager and then by extension to peach elly and it's the fucking sex pistols and dada you actually willed a movement to appear. I've got a lot of the stuff that I did in my first year where I literally I tried to create with a couple of people in class and some people who weren't in the movement which is but we needed more names for the manifesto. And I did a lot of you know just playing with type in the typesetting department, you know, cold metal and woodblock type. Yeah. around the theme of dada. And then I just changed the four letters from dada to punk. That's brilliant. And look, orgasm addict design is iconic, amazing. And if you ever search you, people will do on the internet. It's the second or the first image that comes yeah. up. Talk me through making three of your pieces of work. Talk me through the making of orgasm addict or the thinking that sits behind it, the thinking and the making that sits behind Rio. And then to bring it more up to date, the thinking and the making that sat behind Brexit is over if you want it. Okay, orgasm addict. As I say, I was introduced to Buzzcocks by Linda and Richard Boone asked me to design a poster. 
that they could use, uh, you know, they could write on top of to advertise gigs because this was just after Spiral Scratch. They were still a small punk band, still playing pubs, hadn't signed a record deal. They needed a poster. And Linda said, Malcolm will do you the poster. So I designed the poster and I designed a bit of lettering for Buzzcocks because I didn't like the lettering that they were using for Buzzcocks. You know, I figured I could do a better job. And so, so I designed a bit of lettering. The bit of lettering was on the poster. But I was also learning how to screen print. I love screen printing, again, from Andy Warhol and Pop Art. So I designed this poster, which used found materials. It used illustrations just cut out of newspapers, which nicely photographed black, you know, hard-edged line art, which you could enlarge and make into screen print. Printed the poster. Linda, in the meantime, was producing some handbills for various gigs and producing her montages. Interestingly enough, this resonated for me because, again, part of my drive to create... I'm in the second year now, so part of my drive to create this Dada movement in the first year, before I'd met Linda, I was creating montages, you know. Were influenced by the same people, John Hartfield, Richard Hamilton, the Surrealists, you know, Max Ernst, and putting together these montages. Fast forward to after I produced this poster and before Buzzcock signed to United Artists, who interestingly enough were the record label for Hawkwind. And the connection is there because Pete Shelley was a huge Krautrock fan, as well as Hawkwind. United Artists had Can, yeah. Noi, Amondool, early Captain Beefheart. United Artists is a very interesting label. So Buzzcock signed to United Artists. The single's going to come out, Orgasm Addict, and it's foggy in the mists of time. Now, the foggy memory. But the memory is that the key protagonists, myself, Linda, Howard, Richard, and Pete, came to the decision that the first single should have one of Linda's montages on it. And the montage that was chosen was the one that you see. Yeah. So this is sort of July 1977 when this decision is made. And I've got a summer job in Bolton at a company called Chloride Technical. And this summer job was basically just standing in for the guy who they had a small art department, literally to handle making signs and leaflets and stuff for this factory. It's a big factory. Yeah. And he'd got a slip disc. So he was going to take some time off and he was going to come back. They just needed a stand-in. So that they had the, the smart idea of calling the art school and saying, you know, would one of your students want to come and work with this for the summer? So I put my hand up. I always put my hand up to everything. You make your own look. You just do stuff. I agree with that. And so I went and I got this job. Now, the beauty of having this job was I had a drawing board because it was like the drawing department. I had all these lettering stencils that your rotary pens would, would write in. I had a photocopier. So I had a drawing board. And because I'd been to Reading University, they taught you how to create professional artwork. Mm. They didn't teach you that at the Polytechnic. They teach you how to splash paint around and, and you know, and take photos and be a bit more creative. But at university, you know, they were a bit disciplined. So I was somebody who knew how to do artwork. Now I had a drawing board. Now I had a photocopier and some stencils and a passion for typography. So... The making of Orgasmatic is I photocopy Linda's illustration to do two things. One, to reduce it to line art so it can be produced in single colour. Yeah. Second, 
to scale it down so I can find the right size for it to fit on the seven inch square. And thirdly, me deciding it looked better upside down than the right way up. And so I created a, a mock-up with this photocopied image upside down. And the lettering for Orgasm Added was stenciled. It's hand-done. And I had this kind of weird passion for like, you know, just bending words. Again, must be referential from, you know, Dada manifestos and El Lizitsky and, and that constructivist stuff. And all of the type on the back cover is handset, letter by letter, in cold metal in Manchester Polytechnic typography department. So it's all very hands-on. It's all maker stuff. It's all made. Even the photograph, I defined the space for the photograph where I wanted four figures. And I gave a verbal brief again to Richard Boone. I said, look, and they were out with Kevin Cummins, the photographer, taking some pictures. I said, get them to take a picture in a bus stop. Because Manchester bus stops were four planes of glass. In the bus stop, be framed because I wanted it rectilinear. And I thought this is a great way of them being framed. And so they'd be in a row. So all of these components came back to me and me being me and having learned how to do artwork, pasted them all up. And I remember Richard Boone saying when he first saw it, he said, oh, Malcolm, that's really professional. And I said, well, I am a professional. <laughs> but the colours came about because the record company said, you've got two colours to print. And so I understood printing. And I thought, OK, well, Linda's image was four colour. So I had to reduce it to a single colour, as I say. And I didn't want it black and white. We didn't want it punk. And so, I, OK, well, the nearest you can get to black to give you that definition is dark blue. So the dark blue was set. OK, what colour goes with dark blue? Yellow. Obviously bright yellow. Yeah. You know, because I'm also drawing on, there's a thing called high tech. I was drawing on an industrial looking, you know, aesthetic. You know, that's, and again, where the album, first album came out, it's like metallic silver and fluorescent orange. It's all hazard signs. Also, Malcolm, roll on 10 years. This is rave. The industrial feel to some of Savile's work post New Order had that feeling and what you're describing i can see influencing that movement as well well that's for you to say yeah, of course that's for me to say i know you never said that that's what i see when i was dancing in the hacienda i could see what you just described and feels like it's a link the first album i emulated nat west bank and i chose nat west bank as the bank that i got a bank account with for two reasons one, because my dad banked there. So, you know, going off to university, you get a, a grant check. So you have to have a bank account to pay it into. So my dad helped me open a bank account at NatWest Bank in the Bullring in Northwich. And I liked NatWest Bank because their checkbooks were grey. Yes, they were. They weren't like, do you remember in the 70s where all the banks introduced checks with flowers and pictures on? Mm. Don't give me fucking flowers and pictures. I want a grey, plain checkbook. It's the discipline of money. And so I think what I'm trying to express is there's lots of answers to a simple question. How did that come together? It came together because all of the things that I was interested in that influenced me in, to various degrees, not necessarily all of the things, but everything that's in there were things that were influencing me. 
and I drew on. I find this really fascinating because we run through life covered in glue and, and <laughs> I like that. But they stick to us, right? And the challenge yeah. is how do you decide? Because you're covered in Velcro and glue and you've got all of these influences from Warhol through to rock and roll, probably to the Beatles, yeah. to all of these things swimming about. How do you decide which ones to pull off and turn into a piece of art? Again, it's, you know, it's got, when we first started this conversation, we talked about what looks wrong. And I also said that there's actually no such thing as you don't create anything. You just rearrange stuff. And what we've been talking about is, is all of that, is rearranging different things. And, you know, there's no new colours. You know, people have used that yellow before. They've used that blue before. But they hadn't used it just like that. And they hadn't used it just like that because it didn't have those words. Yeah. And it didn't have those words because nobody had written that song. And it comes down to that. It always comes back to it. I realized that for me, it was always about identifying with this thing that you can't pin down because it doesn't have any physical form and it's noise. Somebody's organized some noises. And again, I, I thought I was interested in typography for the shapes of the letters. And it took me maybe about 10 years to realize that actually, actually, I was interested in typography because of the language. Oh. And 10 years later, I learned how to write. I learned how to formulate my own thoughts and put them into writing. And now... For me, first and foremost, it's the language, and then the typography liberates that language. But as a young designer, as a young student, I explored typography, but instinctively to represent the language that meant something to me. And what's meant something to me were songs like Love Battery by Buzzcocks, Fizzing at the Terminals for You. I loved expressions. You know, I love Big-Eyed Beans from Venus, you know, Captain Beefheart's song. You know, I loved language. The opening song on this album is great. It's called You Shouldn't Do That. There's a kind of chant, not a chant. It's you're getting aware. You're getting nowhere. And then there's the third one. And it's the same sounds, but with a slightly different inflection, says something different. And again... There's a great playlist. You talked about playlists. The first playlist I ever made is on Spotify, and you can download the notes on my website. It's called Songs My First Girlfriend Made Me Listen To. <laughs> so the girlfriend that I had when I was listening to this album, and I always remember playing it on her dad's stereo and hearing bass lines that I'd never heard in there before because I had a cheap dance set and he had a, a stereo. But the reason I made that playlist is that 20-odd years later, I realized that all these songs she used to play for me that I thought were like, oh, for fuck off. You know, it's like, Rod Stewart, you're, you're joking me, aren't you? And because they were songs. She was listening to songs. I was listening to Kraut Rock. I was listening to Noises. Yeah. And even when it was lyrics, you're getting aware. You get nowhere. You get no air. No air. That's it. You That's get it. no air. You got it. You get nowhere. You get nowhere. Yeah. And I was listening to the noises. And that kind of sums it up. Well, she was listening to a song like, you know, Fleetwood Mac, Man of the World. And again, it's like, it took a long, long time for me to actually move from the noise of words and the noise of music to the language of music. 
But instinctively, all the way along, that's what I'd been doing with Buzzcocks, is representing the language of music. That is exactly the brief, isn't it? That is the brief. But, you know, we talked about Dark Side of the Moon, you know, a classic hypnosis sleeve that actually does that job. But hypnosis were never fucking interested in the music. They were never interested in the band. They were just interested in like, okay, what's the next Led Zeppelin album? What great picture can we come up with now? You know, it was an art gallery for them. For me, literally, it was a particular kind of marketing. But we take what we want from the exposure that we get. And for you, music was maybe emotion or sound. And for your ex-girlfriend, it was the lyrics that were dribbled through, that were woven through. Yes. And I like songs for different reasons. And I like some really shit music sometimes because the lyrics are amazing. And I love the Pet Shop Boys because there's a dark edge to what they write. They're genius. They're proper writers. They're incredibly, incredibly. Left um, to my own devices, I probably would. It's amazing. What a line. And it's, it leaves you thinking. I, I literally just felt a tingle through too. my body. I said they've got the same thing. And Rent is one of my absolute favourite songs. Having dinner with a paid lover is just not the thing to write a love song about. But no. it works. Tennant yeah. is a genius. And graphically, they really understood. They understood type and they understood image and they understood space. That's what I liked about them. Well, I've just written an, an article for a, a book. In fact, I've got to look at the proofs this week. Did you see that book, uh, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Got Die? Got it upstairs. It's brilliant book. Okay. Absolutely well, brilliant. the follow-up to that is called Reversing into the In Future. Fact, stay there. I'm lying because I said I've got it upstairs. I got it here. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. Your work is all the way through this. It's, it's, it's incredible. Well, I've been working on the companion volume to that. It's called Reversing into the Future. And it's new wave graphics. So it picks up where that leaves off. Amazing. But I wrote a, an article for it. Initially, I called it I'm with the band. Because what it talks about is what Barney Bubbles started with Hawkwind. Or rather, the Beatles started with like, we're going to get Richard Hamilton to do our sleeve. Barney Bubbles carried it to his epogee with Hawkwind. And what Jamie Reed and myself and Alex McDowell, and Chris Morton, and Peter Saville ultimately did, and that is, we were the designers, but we became, to all intents and purposes, a member of the band. Yeah. Bands didn't always realise it, and they certainly didn't want it, and they wouldn't acknowledge it, and the Pet Shop Boys is probably the finest and smartest example of it, because Mark Farrow did everything from day one, always, and Neil Tennant got it. And trusted him. He trusted him, it comes back to trust, and gave him that space. You know, it obviously would have given him loads of ideas or starting points or thoughts, but he said, Mark, it's up to you. And Mark was effectively the third member of the Pet Shop Boys. So I called my piece, I'm with the band, but then I gave it subheads and I realised that the bit last bit, where I, I actually referenced Pet Shop Boys in the last couple of paragraphs, and I called the last bit, I'm with the band. So... What did I decide to call the piece? In Search of Space. Oh, superb. And look, tell me about Duran Duran. Tell me about Rio. Such an iconic, such a stylistically distinct album cover. It takes you right the way back, right the way to that moment when you first bought it. Tell me how you came up with that. I feel a little bit breathless <laughs> having delivered the orgasmatic story. But 
The thing with Rio was, and it was symptomatic of the band, they always wanted to identify with their heroes. And so, say, rather than be the Rolling Stones and discover David Bailey, they wanted to think back to the Rolling Stones and hire David Bailey because he'd worked with the Rolling Stones. It was, you know, they wanted the association of their heroes to work with. And I was always arguing with them that actually, no, they should find the contemporary David Bailey and work with them because they had the power to make something that was of their time rather than referring to somebody else's time. Anyway, one of the people that they wanted to work with was Patrick Nagel, the illustrator. They loved his illustrations. And so unbeknownst to me, I had no part of this, they contacted him and said, will you do us an album sleeve? So as I understand it, because it wasn't like working with Buzzcocks where I was part of the team. You know, it was like I was sort of working through EMI and I sort of knew them, but I was one step removed, to be fair. And so they'd contracted Patrick Nagel and I think he sent two pencil sketches of two ideas and they chose the one that he then went and painted that became the album sleeve. Yeah. Now, the two crucial things in this were that he expected that his painting would be the album sleeve. That would be it, because that's what illustrators and photographers and bands like. You know, it's like, this is the album image. And so he had drawn it with those three parallelograms in, thinking that's where the lettering is going to go. So that was a given. I had to work with that. But I was fucked if I was going to put this thing as the full album sleeve. And so it had to be smaller than the 12 inches square. But also, me being me, fucking, you know, difficult, decided, well, I'm not just going to shrink it and put a board around it. And I don't quite know how I arrived at it. But again, it's lots of things come together. There's lots of reference points. To me, Rio, I, I, I was looking for a graphic style for the typography. And... Somehow Rio said to me, cigars. It said Cuba. You know, it said... Yeah, I get that, I get that. There was something exotic there. And I'm sure I found that kind of woodblock type that I use for Rio. I'm sure I found a reference for it in a book of cigar packaging or whatever. Anyway, so I found my type style. Then I decided, well, the image has got to be smaller. But here's a smart move. Why don't we, instead of wrapping it round from front to back around the spine, which is what people normally do, let's wrap it around the open end. Yeah. So there's a hole through the picture because that gives me a gap which I can then seal up with a band like you get around a cigar. Lovely. And so the initial copies actually had a little sticker. You know, in the bottom right-hand corner where there's that strip? Yeah. That was stuck on. Amazing. But it was also printed on. And then I'd learned a few tricks by this time. I'd learned that I'm going to need stuff for the singles that they take off this. I'm going to need stuff for the marketing. You know, again, it's not about, oh, here's the picture, put the picture on the poster, put it in an advert. It's like, no, let's kind of, poster's a different shape. It does a different job to an album sleeve. You can have more fun. So again, just taking the elements from within the picture, it's got these like stripes through it. Yeah. So I'll put stripes on it. <laughs> and I don't know why. I decided that you could get textured. You could put these sleeves through rollers and they textured it. 
after it was printed. Yeah. White album was. That was embossed, wasn't it? Yeah, but no, this is not not really like that. This was just a texture into the board. Oh, okay. You could put a leatherette texture in or, you know, different types of grains. And there was all sorts of different ones you could choose from. So it was textured. It had, had the picture wrapping around. It had the stripes. And I was also working with Casper de Graaf, who's the editor of New Sounds, New Styles by this time. And Casper knew Duran Duran from Birmingham because he lived in Birmingham. And so there's a strip of picture on the back that's like a parallelogram and it's got a night sky in it. And there's a bit of a, a wispy shape through it. The wispy shape is Simon Le Bon's hair because they had a photo session done on top of Guy's Hospital with the night sky behind them. And I don't think anyone's ever done this before. And not many people know it because they might not have noticed. When the album came out, we ran an article, a cover article, you know, and a spread on Duran Duran to coincide with the release of the album, as you would do. But the photo of the band that we used in New Sounds New Styles was the very image that I'd taken a slither out of to fit in that parallelogram. But the full picture was in New Sounds New Styles, and we just highlighted that parallelogram. Amazing. So if you were eagle-eyed, you would know it was the same image, exactly the same image used both on the packaging and in the promotion. But it wasn't paid promotion. This was editorial. This was genuine editorial. That's incredible. So what I love about that is I love this thinking that's gone album, not an image, not a picture. There's going to be four singles. I don't know how many singles released off that album. Hungry Like a Wolf. I think there were four. I think there might have been, yeah. So you're already building up the next work. Yes. And you're already building up a theme that you can run through the next piece of work. Yes. That will mean that the album then feels bigger than it truly was because you've managed to create a broader base. I had learned by then, and again, it comes back to creating this space for music. I had learned that in order for something to be iconic, although I didn't phrase it in those terms, but in order for something exactly as you're saying, in order for something to have that presence, then the context within which it sits has to complement and elevate it. Yeah. You know, that's the bigger picture. So that one thing, which is a 12 inch square of thing, can be the representative of the bigger picture. But that bigger picture has to exist for it to be an icon. You can have images that look like they should be icons, but unless they represent something, they're not icons. (laughs) I, I almost actively worked against trying to create an icon through creating, wanting to create this entire environment. But the irony was that was what contributed to it becoming an icon. And I do recognize as an icon. It is by far and away my most popular, you know, you've, you've cited it. The two sleeves that people know about me are Rio and Orgasmatic. And what people don't always connect because they just assume that if you were a punk, how could you go and work for Duran Duran? So, well, all the stuff I did for Duran Duran, I learned how to do by working with punk band Buscots. People don't value or understand the fact that the first punks were the people who started the new romantic movement. The words are dreadful and given by the press. Yeah, yes, they were. And they got disillusioned with the angry nihilism that followed the emergence yeah. of punk. Visage was magazine 
and Medjur. Exactly that. And Rusty was in both of those camps, and George was in both Yeah, he of was in the Rich Kids. Yeah. Yeah, with Glenn Matlock. Boy George was a totally punk. He lived in Birmingham. I didn't realise he lived in Birmingham. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With your man who went on to be Zig Zig Sputnik, Martin Degville. What is wrong with me? I love Zig Zig Sputnik. I love Zig Zig Sputnik. I have always maintained that they are pivotal. 1986 was a pivotal year. Zig Zig Sputnik, Big Audio Dynamite, oh. Screaming Blue Messiahs, Jesus and Mary Chain. All of them. 86 was a turning point year yeah for going from punk new romantic let's look at the future let's be the future i agree and our, our e equals mc squared big audio dynamite is yeah genius right. and i saw them in bradford actually they turned up two hours late mick was really embarrassed he walks in he walked through the audience on stage no, no nothing just did mike really sorry nightmare getting here from london we're going to give you three hours Best three hours of your life. And it was. But I'd go back as well. So I, all of that, I agree with entirely. And I love the fact that you see the lines through this so clearly. Malcolm McLaren, Buffalo Girls, Cheesy, Africa Bambata also looked at the future. This was a yeah. really exciting time. Malcolm, what I absolutely love about this is I love the way when you make, when you create, I said it earlier, you've run through life covered in glue and you've got all of these things and you're pulling <laughs> the right ones out. But you're working with the band. Yes, that's the important thing. You know, I didn't hold with this. I, I sat on a panel discussion once with Roger Dean, and he just joked all the way through it how they did stuff just to piss off the bands. You know, it was a joke. It's like, get out of here. I don't live in the same world as you, mate. And I didn't think I did. You know, for me, the two enemies were Hypnosis and Roger Dean. Yeah. So, yeah. But even then, I mean... What my friend Pete Saville managed to do was actually to do that, but for a label. So he didn't have to like the bands. He, he had to like Factory. That's all he had to like. He had to like the concept of Factory, yeah. which he loved. And he actually brought more to the bands than quite often the bands deserved. Well, I agree with that entirely. Hey, look, ju just to finish this off, because I'm acutely aware of time, bring us right up to date. Brexit is over if you want it. Just give me a two-minute summary of where that came from. Well, I know where it came from, but what was your thinking and what are you hopeful about in the future? My thinking was that, like John Lennon and Yoko Ono, everything starts with a single voice. If you want something to happen, say it. Don't sit in the background. And so there were enough people like me who didn't want Brexit to happen. And I just wanted to point out that, you know, is it stupid to say you can stop war by saying war is over? Or is it profoundly intelligent? And is it profoundly honest? And I decided it was profoundly honest to say Brexit is over. All that has to happen is all of the people who don't want it make enough fucking noise about it. Yeah. And there was a certain amount of noise made. I mean, that one March, I gave a talk on this at Tallinn Music Week in Estonia. I was invited to go over. John Robb introduced me. What a nice guy John Robb is. Oh, he's great. He's fantastic. I love John Robb. He's so good. And anyway, so I bumped into him in the street. He said, oh, do you want to come to Tallinn? And I went, yeah. He said, right, I'll get on the phone to them. And so he got on the phone and they, and they organised for me to go over. And not only did I go over to do an in-conversation with him, they said, oh, would you like to open the conference with 15 minutes about Brexit? 
and I showed there was an aerial photo of the number of people on that march. And I forget the actual number of the people on that march. I was on it. I was on it. But was it a million people? Yeah, more. And I showed this clip, and it's about two minutes long because it's just the helicopter just going from the beginning to the end. And about a quarter of the way into it, there were gasps in the audience for how many people were there. So it's not finished yet. And it just went on and on and on and on. And the one thing that I missed was there were more people on that march than the entire population of Estonia. Oh, bloody hell. It was a very potent day. Yeah. And so what do I hope happened? Well, if it had been 1968, then, you know, there would be disturbances on the street. There would be civil unrest. Yeah. And I watched a very interesting TV programme last night. The, have you seen it? The Jeremy Della no. piece on Acid House. Oh. And he compares well, Acid well, House. The lecture in the classroom. Yes. He compares it to the minor strike. Yeah, it's brilliant. And in a way, what's happened is like, you know, there's a sort of realisation that even if you're the miners and you're that important, if the bastards want to grind you down, they'll grind you down. Yeah. So it moved into like, well, we'll just do our stuff and we won't tell you about it. And so I'm hoping there's a similar kind of thing. You know, and there's enough of us, but there's also, sadly, there's also, it's like, oh, I sent a tweet about that. I've done my bit. Yeah, done it. You know, sign that. Yeah, I've signed the petition. And I, and I sign every petition. You know, I can't stop tweeting. You probably follow me. But I can't not do it. But I fear for the worst. I get depressed about it. I genuinely am depressed. I never had kids. So there's a bit of me goes, well, thank God I didn't have kids because I can't contemplate the idea of the future of this, not just this country, but this fucking world. Yeah. I just watched the movie The Dissident about the murder of Khashoggi in the Saudi Arabian embassy. And there's another film, Capital in the 21st Century, which shows how a shrinking number of extremely rich people getting more and more rich are controlling the world. Yeah. And so I'm genuinely saddened and dismayed about the direction things are going. Climate change. I mean, there's a bit of me that just wants, yeah, bring it on. Fucking kill the fucking lot of them. You know, yeah, I get that. That's my depression. Kind of makes me sort of think that way. You know, I'm, I, you know me. I'm not that kind of. No, you're not. not quite as negative a person. So when I get out of that, I just want to at least stand up and do something. So I do want to say Brexit is over, and it does go back to the Beatles. Growing up with the Beatles, John Lennon, John Lennon, and what was beautiful is that because it's a Yoko Ono idea. And Yoko said, let's do some posters. And John says, I'm the fucking Beatles. Let's just take billboards in every country in the world. Let's just make it big. Because I saw a great interview with Yoko, and she at that time hadn't comprehended that, you know, A, he could do it, and B, he would. And he did. (laughs) So we took something that was like started on the ceiling of an art gallery that said, yes. I love that story. I I love the fact that that happened. The magnifying glass, the set of steps. And I love font. I love type. Not like you love type, not in the same way. But my love of type, I mean, it probably began with Castrol GTX or Duckham's commercial. But when I saw that film, I can't remember. Was it the Silver Beatles? I forget what the film was where they brought it back to life. And the magnifying glass, and I just saw the way she'd written it or the way they imagined she'd written it. And I just went, oh, 
space between letters is really important. And I kind of forgot. But Malcolm, I'm going to have to stop us. We have gone on. <laughs> we have run out of time. I love it. Can we do another one? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I have done more and more of these. And so there's certain things that we talked about today, sort of repetitive. But each time I'm a little bit more aware of things that, as I say, you know, so much was intuitive and instinctive and point in my life where I'm being analytical. You know, even like two weeks ago, I wrote that article and came up with the title, I'm with the band, because I realized that it really was about the designer being important enough, being seen as being important enough, because it always was about identity, personal identity, and identity of, of a group of people, and how to present that visually. It was always about that. And well, if you're gonna do it properly, make sure the person's in the band, because it's their own identity then. Everyone can work out what you do. I can post links, all of the best images will be out there. But it's all about what made Malcolm. It's all about Northwich, which then gave birth to the charlatans of all bands. If you actually come and you visit the council estate that I grew up on, you will understand a little bit more about Malcolm. Well, why don't we do it there? Why don't we film it and do it there? Okay. Because there's gold here. And whether we do it on audio <laughs> or whether we go to Manchester and we go to Northwich, We've got internal production here. Uh, my son-in-law is an yeah. amazing videographer. But I don't want to steal all your time. Malcolm, okay. you have been uh, generous and incredible, and I can't thank you enough. Well, there's a bit of me that likes talking about all this stuff, but let's be honest. It's history, and it's our history. Well, what I do like about it is it, that space that I work in is and was the perfect meeting of commerce and art in an entertainment space that means something to everybody's lives. And where did we see that before? Warhol. He runs yeah. through you like Blackpool through a stick of rock. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, my friend. I'm going to let you go. I've, I've taken up enough of your no, time. No, I've taken up your time. I'm going to go and jump on Peloton. I've got a men's meeting tonight, actually. We do these kind of like men talking about feelings, which is quite uncomfortable, Ooh, but actually okay. really useful. Yeah, yeah, great. Talk soon. Thank you very much. Cheers, man. Cheers, my friend. Bye-bye. Take care.